0: You're listening to Plenary Session. On this week's Plenary Session, you're in for a real treat. We have a few things in store for you. But first, a plug. If you like this episode and you like this podcast, go to the iTunes store and give us five stars. It really means a lot. Write a review if you have the time. If you want to follow us on Twitter, we're at plenary underscore session. And if you really want to support this podcast, now there's a new option. You can go to patreon.com and you can back us, patreon.com forward slash plenary session. You can back us at any level that uh, you choose, and supporters will get access to links and articles that we discuss on this podcast, as well as slides for presentations. So go to Patreon. We could use your support. I'm back here in Plenary Session HQ with Dr. Sven Olson. Dr. Olson is a second year hematology oncology fellow here at OHSU. He has an interesting background. He's originally from Wisconsin. He did his medical school and undergraduate training at the University of Wisconsin. He came to OHSU for his internal medicine residency where he excelled. He was generally considered to be a star internal medicine resident. We were lucky enough to recruit him here to the OHSU Hematology Oncology Fellowship Program. He has fallen in closely with a prior guest on this podcast, Dr. Joseph Schatzel, as well as another prior guest, Dr. Thomas Delory. And together they have done groundbreaking work in benign hematology. Dr. Olson, thank you so much for coming on Plenary Session.
1: Thank you, Dr. Prasad, my pleasure.
0: Now you prefer the term benign hematology, is that right?
1: No, uh, you know, Others have uh, have suggested that this should now be called classical hematology uh, because I think as Dr. DeLore has said before, this is not benign. A lot of it's not benign. Mm, you know, I we see. do see things like MDS and uh, MPNs and things like that, which are also not benign. So I think- that that term should be should be it trivi- discarded. It, it trivializes what you yes. do, and and DBT
0: <laughs> and 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 uh, and the lupus anticoagulant and uh, yeah. those are those are not benign yeah, antiphospholipid those, syndrome.
1: They are sometimes collectively called the thrombotic storm. Anything that's called thrombotic storm is not benign. That's true.
0: And there's tweet storms and there's thrombotic storms. That's true. And neither I think are benign. Well, Doctor Olson, thank you so
1: much for coming on plenary session. Yeah. I will also say that uh, uh, my medical school was done at the Medical College of Wisconsin, but.
0: I thought I said Wisconsin.
1: Uh, University of Wisconsin. Oh,
0: Medical College of Wisconsin.
1: Frequently confused, but I only say that because the medical college is well known for its blood center, mm. where we send a lot of our Adams TS-13 levels. Oh, that's
0: right. That's right. And then we, and then we look at the... Calendar, not Correct. the watch. The calendar.
1: <laughs> that's when I look at my. I have to give credit to my alma mater, MCW, because that's now where we send a lot of our assays. And to be honest, when I was a medical student there, I didn't even know that. You didn't walked, appreciate it. No, I walked past the Blood Center of Wisconsin almost every day. You were on sacred ground for
0: hematology, and you didn't yes, pay, pay I reverence. I didn't know. Wow. I didn't know. Well, let's talk about this article. So you're here to discuss a New England Journal of Medicine paper. Correct. This is about a novel drug. Caplacizumab, did I pronounce that correctly? You did. Caplacizumab, for the treatment of acquired TTP, which is a, a very interesting diagnosis in hematology, which we'll probably talk a little bit about. And the investigators are called Hercules, because this is the Hercules trial. And that is a good name for a trial, is it not?
1: It is, it's a power word. It's a power word, and Hercules is a mighty Greek god. And the preceding trial was Titan. Also a power word. A power word. Power word.
0: And we'll 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 get to the bottom of whether or not this is a power drug that warrants a power word. But it's certainly a power word. So I have to thank the marketers who came up with that. Dr. Olson, can you tell us a little bit about TTP? What is TTP?
1: Sure. TTP, uh, I think it's a very rare disease. But people sort of had a fascination with it for a long time because it has such a... Um, a very distinct pathophysiology and it's, it's honestly kind of exciting to treat in a lot of ways. Mm. Um, you get to use plasmapheresis and yeah. Al- also known as plasma exchange or PLEX. Correct. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, we always learn about this in medical school as this, this pentad of uh, fever and renal dysfunction and altered mental status, but you almost never see that and that's sort of an artifact of when it was first discovered, it's because we didn't notice it until people were nearly dead. And then, of course, they had this pentad.
0: Well, the pentad is fever, anemia, thrombocytopenia, renal dysfunction, and neurological issues. Correct. Uh, and 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 TTP is thrombotic thrombocytopenic purpura, yes, which is a microangiopathic hemolytic process.
1: Yes, it sort of falls under this umbrella of the the TMAs or the thrombotic microangiopathies. So these were a collection of diseases that, uh, in the title or in the in the name itself, you see they have thrombosis frequently involved. Um, And then they also have a microangiopathic hemolytic anemia. And so it's one of those, and the others being atypical HUS, typical HUS, and there's sort of a grab bag of secondary HUS diagnoses. Like post-transplant
0: TMA or something like that. Yes, yeah. Mm
1: -hmm. And then what about the history of
0: of TTP? I saw that you had a piece of paper, and I saw on the piece of paper it said
1: something called history of TTP, which I know nothing about. You know part of the as I go through uh, the fellowship and I learn uh, how to treat a lot of these thrombotic diseases, it's actually really interesting to go back and see how these pioneers kind of figured out the you know the coagulation cascade and then they discovered von Willebrand's factor and often with really amusing stories. Hmm. So this one uh, you know goes back to the 1920s when this gentleman named uh, Dr. Moskowitz. Uh, first noticed this diagnosis in like a 16-year-old girl who had this sort of pentad of symptoms. Mm-hmm. And he coined it thrombotic thrombocytopenic purpura. But it, then, you know, the actual mechanism wasn't discovered until the 80s. And mm-hmm. actually the 90s, when they finally discovered it was von Willebrand's factor involved. And finally, they found this ADAMS TS-13 enzyme that is ultimately the culprit. Um, so it gives you a sense of how long it took to get to the bottom of it, and actually how recently we noticed what actually causes it and how to treat it.
0: Mm, that's, and, and I think that's, a, that's a, nice, it's a nice bit of history. So explain to me. The ADAMS-TS, matrix metalloprotease, is a cleaving enzyme, and if it is inhibited or otherwise very, very low levels, as what happens in acquired TTP, you get von Willebrand's multimers that get really, really, really long. Yes. And, and that causes
1: Well, so you have these, uh, von Willebrand's is is in all your endothelial cells, your platelets, and it's these big, long strings, these coiled strings, and they just sort of float around as they get secreted, and ordinarily, uh, this atom TS13 enzyme, as these sort of big coils of von Willebrand's unravel under shear stress or some thrombus, it'll clip these little Mm -hmm. pieces into smaller, smaller mm small little bits, and so those don't attract platelets and stick to platelets as readily. But when you lack that enzyme, that Adam's enzyme, either congenitally, which is extremely rare, or through an autoimmune process by having an inhibitor, then you lack that enzyme, and these big strings of von Willebrands can persist, and they just attract a lot of platelets, and mm-hmm. a lot of microthrombi, mostly in your small vessels, and that ultimately leads to all the tissue damage and sequelae of the disease.
0: And the schistocytes are formed when the microthrombi have an RBC that just shoved through it and just gets sheared and ripped apart
1: to bits. It's like a tube with a bunch of knives in it and it just the, filters through there and cuts them all. up. This is pieces. how you imagine it, with that sound effect. Yeah, but and actually whoosh, some of the articles whoosh, you see have little scissors whoosh, in their figures and I they see. show little scissors cutting I see. it. So. I
0: see, so uh, let me tell, uh, I guess uh, the reason I think that you are excited by TTP is that it is one of the handful of instances that are considered sort of a hematologic emergency. You get called in the middle of the night and somebody tells you about a patient out there in the community whose LDH is sky high, whose hemoglobin is dropping, whose platelets are very, very low, and this patient has evidence of hemolysis. Uh, and somebody looks at the smear and they say, oh my God, they're a bunch of schistocytes. And the patient's also confused and may have a fever. And you say, wow, uh, I, I cannot rule out the presumptive diagnosis of TTP. I would like you to transfer this patient to... OHSU, where we will institute as rapidly as possible plasma exchange. And plasma exchange has a beauty to it, which is that unlike plasma infusion, which was the standard of care prior to plasma exchange, with plasma exchange, you can really exchange a lot of volume, and you can potentially remove a lot of the inhibitor, if there's an inhibitor present, um, and potentially replete the
1: ADAMS-TS.
0: Is that fair to say?
1: That's correct, and that's for the acquired form, so Uh plasma exchange... Uh, is meant to not only give you back a lot of the atoms in the uh, plasma that you infuse afterwards, but it also kind of sucks away all the inhibitor. Whereas if you just don't have that inhi- uh, atoms level because you were born without it, you can just simply give them back factor. Nice, and see. that's just fine.
0: And that um, congenital TTP is um, I- it's in the same umbrella, but it's a it's a even rarer right, and it's a it's a distinct disease. I think it's
1: less than a. of all TTP cases, if I'm not mistaken, and you'll notice it very early on, for Uh, the most part, uh, uh, in young children. So a pediatrician would rather make the diagnosis than
0: adult. But let me ask you this. But the real reason we do PLEX, plasma exchange, rather than plasma infusion, is randomized controlled trials that show mortality benefit from plasma exchange. Those have a fragility index to it. That I think uh, I wish I I actually think I actually don't know off the top of my head and I hope a listener will write in to Planetary Session and tell us if these trials are very robust because I think these are older Canadian studies or what the fragility of those trials is. But let's leave that for another day. Okay, so into TTP, you have TTP um, this is this you know entity, this condition, it's the kind of thing that gets you up at night, literally, it gets you excited, um, and you're plasma exchanging a patient. Um, you do that until the platelets normalize, is that fair to say?
1: Yes, and that's actually largely based on that first randomized trial in 1991, where that was their response criteria, was platelets above 150, because you fr- frequently get platelets that are you know zero or less than 30, Um, But that trial also had mortality benefit, did it not? It did. So that was the one that randomized to plasma exchange or just simple FFP. Mm -hmm. And the mortality went from, you know, nearly 100% prior to all that to something like 20%. And that's sort of the number that's now quoted uh, in all the textbooks and all the things you read where the mortality is still about 20%. And that usually all happens in the acute phase. Okay. And And so um, it was pretty good. I mean, it... uh, that's one of the bigger randomized trials, but even before that, there were a lot of kind of smaller studies that seemed to suggest that plasma was a good a good uh, treatment.
0: Okay, so in that backdrop, so now you have a patient these days, you'll do plasma exchange for many days until the platelets normalize. Um, you may even administer some other drugs. Is that fair to say? You'll sometimes get steroids, sometimes rituxin.
1: Yeah, and actually, steroids were tried without pheresis to begin with and sort of were separately noted to be effective. Because people suspected it was autoimmune, and then someone tried combining them, and lo and behold, it actually seemed to improve things more long-term. Uh, but yeah, typically now, you know, we we treat the the underlying acute kind of issue with the inhibitor and try to eliminate that inhibitor with immune suppression. It's usually steroids, and we often give rituximab up front too,
0: mm-hmm. based on robust randomized control trial data.
1: Dr. Olson, I see you're leading me into another trap here. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, uh, uh, you know, mm-hmm. rituximab was mm-hmm. mostly studied in uh, the relapse or refractory setting. Mm-hmm. And then t- a couple people did some phase two studies, small studies, and seemed to suggest efficacy up front. And mm-hmm. so now, given largely that and the uh, pretty good tolerability of rituximab, we often do it up front. That's fair to say.
0: And, okay, so, so in this backdrop comes caplicizumab. Caplicizumab is a monoclonal antibody, it's a nanobody. Which is Pardon me? Which is part of what makes it sexy. A, a nanobody. It's a nanobody. Now, what is the difference between a nanobody and monoclonal antibody? It's well, small?
1: Well, the maker's ablinks would have you believe it's a superior form of uh, antibody. Does
0: does the human body make a nanobody?
1: It does not. Only camels do. Camels and I think one other species. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, yeah, it's a, it's actually, so the most monoclonal antibodies are, you know, heavy and a light chain. Mm-hmm. Variable constant regions, but this is purely a heavy chain with a single variable region, and that's it. And so they will argue that it's better tissue penetration, longer half-life, safer uh, than so a, it's mono- a monoclonal antibody. It's a
0: humanized nanobody. Correct. And the only living species that has nanobodies
1: is the camel. And I think one other, and I can't remember what the one other one is. One other animal
0: that you're blanking on. Yep. Okay. Okay, so... That sounds good. That's the kind of stuff that I want to see in the drug ads. Uh, <laughs> nanobody, camel picture at a distance, that's that's what I want to see. Um, and and the end point of this trial is the normalization of platelets to that yeah. 150 threshold.
1: Same as all the other trials, mm-hmm.
0: yep. Which is a surrogate endpoint. Yes. A surrogate for what people actually care about, which is living longer, living better. Correct. Okay. And uh, I'm looking at this Kaplan-Meier curve here, and I think... You see it right here. Figure one. Yep. And this is a successful trial. It was. Because that p-value is less than 0.05. And, and there's some space in between these two curves that you could fit at least multiple laser pointers in. Yeah. Now that space isn't all in the beginning and it isn't in the end where the curves really do kind of reach the same plateau. Right in the middle. But It's right in the middle, that little plump middle. Okay, and what is this telling us? This is telling us that if you get this antibody, nanobody. Nanobody. Crap. so boy. I'll call you out on that every time. Every time you got to, <laughs> I want you to keep me in line on that. Every t- if you get this nanobody, um, which which costs how much, Doctor Olson?
1: Well, you know, I didn't know about this until just recently. Uh, this is the I think the question everyone wants to know, uh, and I just read some press release yesterday. Wait, don't tell me. Can I guess? You may guess. Okay. Um. How? Uh, what unit should I guess for?
0: Like uh, over the course of like a month or a week, you know, what am I guessing? For? They,
1: they list it as the typical treatment course. Oh, okay.
0: Okay. My guess is they're going to justify by saying that you save about five days of plaques and plaques cost. I bet it's going to be $140,000.
1: Now, should I say, or should we discuss it and then talk about it? No, no. Tell us. Tell me the prices. So it listed as $270,000 for a typical treatment course. Oh! And as this trial would have okay, you trial. I the think trials. it's, they used it for, you know, 30 days or more. Mm-hmm. So. so it's more expensive than I thought it would be. I see.
0: Okay, but now let's talk about the data. This is what you're in here for. You are the most savvy with this data because you've studied it for a presentation, and I've only read this paper very briefly. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so what's your takeaway? What I mean, what what do listeners need to know?
1: Well, I think uh, part of the problem is you know the the platelet count is what we use as the response criteria for. Anything with TTP, it seems like. The surrogate endpoint. And that, you know, it does reflect um, how much your platelets are aggregating and to some degree is a decent surrogate. But what we're really trying to do is re- eliminate the inhibitor. And to that, uh, to that end, this drug doesn't do that. It is a Band-Aid, not a solution. So it will certainly, uh, you know, reduce platelet aggregation and potentially thrombus, but it won't affect the inhibitor. And I think that's the biggest point to take away from it. Is things like plasmapheresis and immunosuppression are arguably more important. They're still the backbone. They treat the root cause. Right. Okay. But I'm going to push you on this. So this is an
0: antibody that inhibits the binding of platelet, to, uh, a, specific, a specific part of the platelet, the
1: glycoprotein 1B. Yeah. It basically creates von Willebrand's disease, essentially.
0: Right. So it binds to the 1B mm-hmm. and prevents it from binding what? Uh, the, the, the multimer
1: correct okay so so it binds the multimer and then prevents it from in, uh, attaching to glycoprotein 1b on the platelet
0: so the reason it's improving platelet is it, is that it's preventing platelets from being sequestered into this whole mess brought right. brought into it
1: So right away, you can see that if the platelets go up, it doesn't necessarily reflect the biology being different. Right. It just means that you have less platelets aggregating. Right.
0: You're liberating the platelets. You're making them loose so you can count them in the counter. Right. Okay. Um, But the real question is, does it actually treat the biology of the disease? And what you're saying is it's not getting at the root. It's not getting at the inhibitor. It's not getting at the ADAMS-TS.
1: Right. And some would argue that, yes, that'll happen with immunosuppression regardless. But what we really need is something in this acute setting where most of the mortality still happens. And they argue that most of the mortality is still from all these thrombotic complications. And a lot of people will get strokes or, you know, silent infarcts. They'll get MIs. Um, people still get renal dysfunction, renal thrombosis. And so that's the what they're targeting, I think, with this. And um, so... To that extent, you know the that's primar- the plausibility, yeah. Right, the primary endpoint was met. That was nice.
0: Yeah, that it's it it sped the time to platelets being 150 or greater, and be, and because the human decision to plex someone is based on the platelet level, they will be less plexed by definition.
1: Right, okay. and so that uh, was another kind of thing they touted as being uh, requiring less days of plex when you're on this drug by. You know, I think it was three, four days. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the platelet normalization was improved by, I think, like a day. Right. A, uh, a
0: modest improvement. And of platelet, that yeah. was significant.
1: But, you know, I would argue that the the less days of Plex may not be necessarily a good thing. I would say that it may be prematurely causing people to stop Plex when the platelets go up faster when ordinarily they might not have stopped it so soon, and in fact it might benefit to be on Plex longer.
0: Mm, Because it's actually removing the inhibitor. Right Now let me ask you this. This study is not powered for nor suited for drawing firm conclusions about mortality, and indeed they have invented something called TTP-related death, which is actually something that I didn't know about because I <laughs> thought there was just death or not death. I didn't know there was a TTP-related death for somebody who had a TTP and potentially a non-TTP-related death.
1: Well, convenient for them, all the deaths in the trial were TTP-related.
0: That's what I noticed, yeah. All the deaths are TTP-related. <laughs> okay, the next thing I know is because this this body not a nanobot, nanobody. Nanobody. Of course, a nanobot. It's a smaller antibody. That would be crazy. Sounds but cool. it's a nanobody. This nanobody, because it simulates von Willebrand's disease, leads to, uh, or perhaps because it simulates von Willebrand's disease, but it does certainly lead to bleeding-related adverse events, which are 65% of the drug group versus 48% of the placebo group. Serious adverse events are 11% of the drug group, 1% of the placebo group. So, you know, it's increasing the risk of bleeding. Um, and there's no real effect on the endpoint I care about, which is, death, not TTP-related death, although that's something I'm learning about that's a new thing. Um, here's my question for you, Dr. Olson. What if, what if I did a randomized control trial where in the control arm of the therapy, I um, have current standard of care, which is the placebo arm of this trial. Mm-hmm. In the intervention arm of the therapy, my intervention is to insert a glitch in the EMR. It's a glitch. It's a computer glitch. And what it does is it adds 40 to every platelet value. So whatever the patient's platelet is, it'll add 40. Whatever the patient's platelet is, add forty, add forty, add forty. Okay? That's my that's my glitch. Okay. I hypothesize that my intervention of an EMR glitch would one have a faster platelet normalization because I'll add platelets. You Probably, agree? Yes. Probably. I may improve platelet normalization by about one day.
1: Yeah.
0: As was seen in this trial. Probably. I will actually have less Plex on my trial because doctors will, will turn off the Plex machine because uh, the platelets have normalized. That is true. I will have more bleeding on my trial because the actual um, platelet level is lower than what the EMR is showing. So there'll be a little bit more bleeding. Could be true. Could be true. And there'll be no impact on death, I suspect, because um, it's it's underpowered. My study will be underpowered, of course, to make a firm conclusion about that. Mm-hmm. So in other words, i'm I have proposed Hercules two. <laughs> my but my real question is, although i'm being I'm being kind of joking about it, is, you know, isn't this, isn't that the same thing that like, how do I know this drug is better than an EMR glitch? And that's the same question I had for you about,
1: you know what I'm talking about, avatrombopag and Lustrombapag, right? That's right. And I had a, I feel like I had a similar response. Which is what? I wasn't totally in favor of those either. I think that they were kind of me too drugs that accomplish a lot of the same things. Mm -hmm. And similarly, I'm not super big fan of this because although it does sort of, do what it says it does and and prolong the time to TTP getting worse, it still lets it get worse as soon as you stop it. So Mm -hmm. you'll notice in this trial that, you know, the people that got it, they did okay. They didn't have exacerbations of their disease while they got it. And then as soon as they stopped it, they all caught up. So it's kind of like a similar phenomenon to people who are on long-term anticoagulation for an unprovoked clot. And as long as they're on it, they're fine. And as soon as you stop it, their risk goes right up to the where anyone else would be, and they catch up. So, Oh, that's an
0: astute point. You know, like in those trials of Coumadin of different duration, we have to follow them even years out to look for catch-up events, quote-unquote right. catch-up events. And there was that in some of these trials.
1: Right. So, you know, this, I think one of the biggest points they made in this is that uh, at the end of plasmapheresis, they measured everyone's atoms level, and less than 10% is diagnostic of TTP. mm mm-hmm. Uh, and they measured at the end of Plex, and a substantial proportion of people still had a really low atoms level of less than 10%. And they thought, in those people, this may be a reason to keep the caplacizumab going. Mm-hmm. I saw that. That's what the um,
0: the writer of the dr- of the manuscript said. That they in the in the discussion, they said that this might be a reason to keep it going.
1: Yeah, and I guess uh, you know I uh, I I took a little bit of issue with that because we don't know that. <laughs> uh, sh- certainly, it may help, but then where's the end point? Where do you stop this drug? Do You keep it forever? Uh, on the other hand, does that just mean that you need to do a little bit of something different about your plex, do it more often, more frequently, m- longer, or do something different with your immunosuppression? I'm trying to find out who wrote that Who wrote that sentence. You know, I looked to see the first thing I do after, mm-hmm. since having learned all this about trial interpretation <laughs> from you, is I look for who wrote the study. Yeah? And there is a line about the study uh, investigators Reviewing and revising the manuscript. Reviewing nothing, and revising. What about, writing? about writing. What about writing? And huh? I, I tell you, I combed through the
0: supplement uh-huh, to I find it, and I could it. not find <laughs> it. Because so, you know that's the first thing I talk about on Plenary Session, yes. who wrote the paper. <laughs> and I'll tell you what, I wish I lived in a world where I didn't have to write any of the papers that, uh, you know, that we're working on. Um, would be nice. I wonder what, what I would do with my free time that I do spend writing. It would be very nice. It would be very nice. So what you're saying is they reviewed it, and they edited it yep but no one, but it must have looked good of course and um, and 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 that and and when you do a randomized trial and you find something like that at the end, um, you know feel free to embellish in the discussion that that is a possible suggestion you continue this indefinitely. Mm-hmm. I bet the continuing it indefinitely part didn't get worked into that $270,000 price tag you just gave us.
1: No, I don't think it has. Uh, we'll have to see if that's corroborated by their eventual you know package insert and see what the actual cost will be, and not just the drug cost, but then the you know, yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Okay. So, um, and by the way, I, we should just unpack a little bit why those, I don't like those TPO agonists. But these are like randomized <laughs> controlled trials of people with like hepatitis, not hepatitis, but. Um, cirrhosis cirrhosis um who happened to have thrombocytopenia which you know listeners may not know goes hand in hand with cirrhosis I'll
1: And i'll say they call it chronic liver disease and i think it's because they can abbreviate it cld and that reduces the character count i see CLD. at least that's what i found in my manuscript i see i see right <laughs> <laughs> okay
0: so they have cld and they have thrombocytopenia um typically at some point prior to enrolling on those studies below 50, Mm -hmm. it had to be below 50, at least on the date of enrollment, it could've been higher before. So there may be some regression to the mean, which is what we have to see in the placebo arm. Then they're randomized to a TPO agonist or placebo, and they're undergoing a procedure in the near future. And listeners may not know, but a lot of the people who do procedures in the hospital want to see someone platelets over 50. Now, why do they pick 50? Not always a good reason, right? It's not always a good reason. It's a number- It's kind of made up. It's a number that's a multiple of 100, (laughs) <laughs> which which is interesting that the human body has 10 fingers and that's why, you know, our numerical systems are most of them are rooted in base 10. And somehow 50 is still a magic number for platelets. But yeah, that's the magic number. And you want to get the platelets over 50 before you do the procedure because you don't want to risk of bleeding. And this is a drug that will increase platelet numbers. So if you randomize patients getting the drug versus placebo, more of them meet the bar of 50 and less of them get platelet infusions than if you... Just had them take a placebo, and so the drug is approved because it decreases the need for platelet infusion prior to a procedure for a person with CLD. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, if the doctor says 50 has to be the threshold, but Correct. of course, but, but of course that's an invented threshold, and and the trial didn't even wasn't powered for, designed for, intended for, and could not measure improvements in what we actually care about rates of bleeding.
1: We haven't even seen the full publication of one of those two trials that led to one of these approvals. So, Avatrombopag has phase three data published. Lucitrombopag is Lusitrombopag an abstract, and that's not the full results aren't there yet. So, uh, despite that, yeah, their trials were powered to, uh, again, achieving a certain platelet count, which, again, in cirrhosis, we know uh, is kind of not the best. Uh, marker of your risk for bleeding because there's so many other things going on. So mm, That's right.
0: And it's a it's a complex um, hematologic condition with both prothrombotic and antithrombotic risks.
1: Right. Right. So I would argue that uh, just achieving that number may not mean anything, to be honest. And in fact, they didn't really measure any other markers of uh, coagulation in those trials, like a TAG or a PT or a PTT or what have you, so we have mm-hmm. no clue what was happening with them, ultimately.
0: Weren't we supposed to write a paper on that topic?
1: Oh, I was waiting for you to say something <laughs> about this. <laughs> <laughs> I will say that yes, we had agreed to write a paper on this topic. And then what happened? And then I wrote the paper, uh-huh. and uh, I, was, uh, I was politely told to submit it to a different journal by another mentor. <laughs> uh, and this occurred very quickly, and I was forced to come back to you, Dr. Prasad, with my tail between my legs. And say, Although, that, and say that you're cut out. And I guess I was cut out.
0: No, no, I was cut out.
1: Oh, you were cut out. Yes, you were cut out. Yeah. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Okay. But I'm glad we can still have this discussion about it here. Good and <laughs> <laughs> just among friends. Does this make up for it a little bit, yeah no' I'd okay. like I like to hear the
0: the truths uh, <laughs> on this podcast, but that's also slash confession booth um okay so so I like what you had to say about um about all these approvals um I, reading between the lines, you sound a little I would say critical um you're you're reading this with a critical eye this paper
1: just, yeah, I mean I think um it, so, again, there is clear there is a clear signal when they look at these uh, secondary outcomes and they lump them all together in this composite outcome of TTP death, <laughs> relapse, uh, and I believe thrombotic events. And it's mostly driven by the reduction in, in exacerbation or relapse when you're getting the drug. And that's clear. So people who got it, they... Definitely didn't have any recurrence or exacerbation nearly as often as people who got placebo. While getting it, while getting it, right. So that is clear. So it does something, but whether that something is uh, like meaningful in the long term, worth the cost that we eventually find out, uh, that's that remains to be seen. And okay, I, I agree. I would say I would just add that, and
0: and then the areas of uncertainty are one, we we don't have enough to know the effects on the hardest endpoint, mortality. We don't know enough about long term whether or not these patients who inevitably come off this antibody because I don't think anyone's going to be giving it for nanobody. life. Nanobody. Um, if they if they catch up in terms of of, of relapse, right? Uh, because the definition of relapse being more than thirty days and exacerbation within thirty days. And it seems like they might. And it seems like they might. And then the third thing we don't know is this bleed signal. This is yeah. a this is a, this is a drug that has a bleeding signal. And again, it's not powered or designed to assess how bad that bleeding signal is. Um, and at the end of the day, the only thing that is solid is the primary endpoint, in my opinion, which is platelet recovery. And the reason platelets are going up is that the platelets are not being bound um, to uh, Von Willebrand's factor. Correct, yeah. And and so that's, a, that's about all I know. So I guess I would say I think that this is a great example of a drug that could have been developed, I think, initially in a randomized control trial for people with relapse disease to look for some clinically meaningful endpoints there. Because the event rates would be higher, and then in the frontline setting, I think it should have been designed and powered for, you know, the, the meaningful endpoint. That's just my take. I think TTP is so interesting because even though it is very rare, we see it so often.
1: Yeah, you know, it's one of those things where it's kind of like HLH or this hemophagocytic lymphohistiocytosis. When you have a lecture that you give to um, to house staff or students or anyone, uh, it immediately makes it more prominent in their mind. So it seems like those consults come in more frequently mm-hmm. for a few weeks after you give those. But actually, you're right. Despite this being so rare, we, you know, I, I'd say we test for this Adams level uh, numerous times per year. You would think it'd be like once a year. But I know as a fellow in my first year, I think I sent off at least three, four, or five of them. Um, how many of them actually came back positive were? Less that, than that, that's but. so
0: f- interesting that you allude to the fact that, like, right after a lecture on TTP or HLH, <laughs> you think that there's like an increase in it.
1: Yeah, well, there's a. You know, I think there's this tendency where, uh, again, I mentioned this at the start of this, where I, I hate to say it, but these are kind of exciting diseases, and you know, I, I I do take pride in that I find this exciting work, and so certain diseases are interesting to me. And I think that goes the same for house staff, mm-hmm. um, where if it interests you and it's sort of an interesting pathophysiology, you're going to think of it more, mm-hmm. and uh, it's such a it's such a distinct thing that you do for it. You do plasmapheresis, and you know, we don't do that for all that many things, ultimately. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, I do notice that for certain diseases. That's
0: interesting to me because I notice that um, I, I believe that Takatsubo is one of those <laughs> things because people are really really obsessed with Takatsubo.
1: Yeah, again, it's sort of like, it's, I, I mean, I'm not a cardiologist, but it seems like it's an easy thing to invoke. Yeah. You know, you can't prove someone didn't have a terrible stress in their life. Right, so. yeah. Well, Dr. Olson, I, you know,
0: thank you for reading through this. Do you have any other notes jotted down that we didn't come to?
1: Oh, what did I have here? Not really. I, uh, I just had the uh the cost was the biggest thing that i added to my notes this morning and it yeah, was just a, a late breaking thing that i saw so we will see they had their padufa date last week and they got it on the and date they got it and i think this number was published online after that so oh
0: you know what uh there's a nice paper by i think joe ross and colleagues looking at safety signals of drugs that get approved very near the padufa date versus those that get approved long before the padufa date i think that's worth checking out hmm. uh which I one can just, you can hypothesize what the conclusion is there. The other thing I would say here is that listeners may not fully appreciate, but that the tissue microangiopathies are poised to become some of the most costly medical conditions around. Because now you're going to get in a situation where somebody comes in with chistocytes on the smear, and you're going to plex them until you get the atoms. And if the atoms is high, you're going to think about giving mechalizumab, and if the atoms is low, you're going to think about giving this this <laughs> nanobody. Is that not right? Yeah, you're kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't. In terms of price? Yes. Yes, yeah. they're creating a fork in the road where both ends lead to windfall profits from very expensive antibody slash nanobodies.
1: And one thing I wish I knew uh, is the cost of a typical round of phoresis. I admit I don't know that. That would kind of help to put this in context, but. I think that probably the way they'll justify that price tag is by saying phoresis
0: is costly. And we know for sure that phoresis has some cost and i mean it, it certainly does have yeah, a yeah and you
1: have to have a line in and you can have infectious complications and stuff like that but
0: but the reason i think it's so important to measure hard endpoints is my thought experiment about an emr um glitch <laughs> because i think that if if you if a emr glitch would give you the exact same results as a trial which i think it's not it's not out of the realm of you know thought possibility that an EMR glitch would give you the exact same results as this trial. Um, then I think you really have to ask yourself, what when, you, know, you need to measure something. The same is true for the, you know, I said before, for the Ava Trombopag studies, an EMR glitch that just adds 30 points to the platelet count will give you the exact same result that was seen in those randomized st- studies. Yeah. Well, Dr. Olson, thank you for coming on Plenary Session. I know you're a listener, you listen here or there, and now you've been on the podcast, you're gonna be back because there's lots of updates in classical
1: hematology. Well, I'm glad that you you seem to be taking a liking to classical hematology more and more, hopefully because of the efforts of of Dr. Schatzel and myself.
0: Uh-huh. Well, I guess in full disclosure, even though <laughs> I give you a great deal of difficulty about your interest in classical hematology, just between friends, I will admit that I like you find classical hematology very very interesting. You know, there's a reason why I I I I volunteer and attend on that service um, that you've had, you know, you've joined us on rounds many times because I do agree with you that it is interesting to study these conditions. These conditions are, I agree with Dr. Deloria, as he said on a prior podcast, they're not benign. They're very serious. They require um, good judgment, good evidence, um, good thinking. It's a very important thing to do. And the pathophysiology for some of these conditions has been elucidated to, uh, you know, a, a very clear degree. And and there is some parsimony in many of these cases and some and some very interesting um, science stories. So I do I, I agree with you. I, I think it's a it's a noble pursuit. And so that's I'm glad my glad we have that recorded. <laughs> <laughs> Thank
1: you, Doctor Ellison, for coming on. I'll bring that on when we have tumor board in the future. <laughs> Thank you for having me.
0: I'm back here in Plenary Session HQ with Dr. Inma Hernandez. Dr. Hernandez is an assistant professor of medicine at the University of Pittsburgh. She's the associate director for the Center of Pharmaceutical Prescribing and Policy. And she has been so gracious to join us here all day at OHSU, where she started off this morning by giving us grand rounds, uh, where she talked about the different drivers of pharmaceutical spending over time. Uh, She joined us in this class that I teach and gave an impromptu and stellar lecture on cost-effectiveness analysis after hearing me bungle the topic. (laughs) And then finally, she came to our fellowship team meeting in the middle of the day and taught the fellows how to submit the perfect K award. And she was so gracious to even show us excerpts from her K award that made me think that I should perhaps do a follow-up series on how to (laughs) submit a losing K award. (laughs) But uh, Dr. Hernandez, thank you so much for joining us on Plenary Session.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: Um I I'd, I wanted to tell listeners a little bit about your background. Um you're originally from Spain and you you really had this great slide when you introduced yourself this morning where um you said your mother was a pharmacist and your your father is an economist right. and you did you originally studied f- for pharmacy school and then you decided to do a PhD in healthcare policy. Is that right?
2: Yeah, that's correct. Um I went to pharmacy school back home in Spain and then I moved to Pittsburgh to do my PhD in health services research Mm -hmm. in the School of Public Health. And now I do a little bit of pharmac economics work. So we always make the joke that I'm like a mix of (laughs) both of them.
0: The perfect 50-50. Yeah. 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 Well, that's great. And and then you went from being a PhD student at the University of Pittsburgh uh, to transitioning there on faculty. And you've been on faculty now just for a few years.
2: Yeah, um, I graduated in 2016, and that's when I took my job in in the school of pharmacy, and um, I've been there since. So I'm two and a, two years and a half in in my job now.
0: No, oh, that's wonderful, and um, I think some listeners will be familiar with your work uh, because it's you know increasingly discussed, uh, and particularly the the broader topic of cost of prescription drugs. Um, one of the things you were talking about this morning that I thought was really fascinating was your recent paper in Health Affairs, where you tried to tease apart two drivers of pharmaceutical spending. One driver is the idea that some of these drugs are on the market and year over year, the pharmaceutical company cranks up the price of that drug, often beyond what inflation is. And the second driver is new drugs come to market and they are priced often higher than the drugs that previously came to market. And you were able to kind of untangle the relative contribution of each of these things in in different spaces in in pharmaceutical drugs. I'm wondering if you could kind of just take us through that a little bit.
2: Um, Yeah, so in this paper we said to to figure out to what extent rising drug prices uh, are, as you said, um, due to year over year inflation in prices of existing drugs versus the market entry of new, more expensive products. Uh, So in this paper we use pricing data from First Data Bank. So those are list prices and unfortunately do not account for rebates. Um, We also accounted for the relative utilization of each drug using claims from UPMC Health Plan. So the methods are a bit um, sophisticated and complicated and I don't want to go into details there. Mm -hmm. But basically every year we calculated average prices after weighting each drug by um, the number of, of claims used for it. And then we calculated year-over-year year increases in average prices mm-hmm. of all drugs, and then further stratified for new drugs and existing drugs. Mm-hmm. And doing that and using as weights how many claims existing versus new drugs represented, we, we figured out this contribution. Uh, I should say that we define as new drugs, mm-hmm. drugs that came within the last three years.
0: Mm-hmm. And what was your your takeaway finding?
2: So um, we found that across all categories, mm-hmm. drug prices increased much faster than inflation. Uh, oral generics was the class that presented the lowest price increases, yet they outpaced inflation by twofold. Mm-hmm. Um, specialty oral drugs presented the largest increases, and, and those were 13 times faster than inflation. Mm-hmm. We also found that in the branding market, rising drug prices are mostly driven by year-over-year inflation Mm. in existing products. But in the specialty and generic market, it is actually innovation, meaning the entry of new, more expensive products what is actually driving up prices.
0: I see. In the specialty and generic markets, the reason that a payer is paying more, or all payers, both patients and, and, and insurers, is that, they're launching new costly drugs. But in the branded pharmaceutical market, non-specialty, uh, you're finding that it's actually just cranking up the price of older drugs. Yeah, that's correct. Hmm. I wonder if perhaps part of that is because, um, it is related to the the number of novel entrants. Is it is that a factor in this?
2: Right, um, so I think that if, in this study we use 2006 uh-huh. through 2016 data, uh-huh. Um, probably if we had used data from, I don't know, 1995 to 2006, the results could have been different.
0: Because that was the heyday of branded drugs. Exactly. Mm-hmm.
2: Because in, in our study period, there were very few blockbuster small molecule entrants. Um, yes, a few like neural anticoagulants, for example, but most of the innovation was in the specialty landscape. So obviously the, the results are very determined by, by the years of data that we use. Mm-hmm. And they certainly cannot be extrapolated to other years. Um, this, this decade was marked by the expiration of the patents of many of these blockbuster drugs that entered in the early 2000s. Um, and also by again a lot of innovation, the entry of blockbuster specialty medications. Mm-hmm. So it's it's obviously very dependent on on that, and I certainly think results could be very different if we had used other years of data.
0: Different years. A- and one of the things that I was that made me think about was that the the regulatory hurdles to get a specialty drug on the market are often lower than the regulatory hurdles to get a drug that treats say hyperlipidemia or hypertension on the market, um, and. And this may have even gotten exacerbated over the last decade, and that might be why we have a deluge of new specialty drugs. Um, because many of these drugs, I think about my own field in cancer medicine, you know, the majority of the drugs are coming to market with only evidence they improve surrogate endpoints. Um, in about a third of cases, it's uncontrolled studies. We have no con- contemporary control arm, um, and it's the endpoint of response rate. Um, and I wonder if that kind of has led to you know. The industry is going to put their R&D dollars into the places where it is has the best bang for its buck. And if it has the best bang for its buck in the specialty drug market space, because you can charge whatever you want and you can get to market rather easily, um, then they do that Even if that means giving up a larger market share, um, which is the benefit, obviously, of branded drugs in non-specialty settings, uh, the so-called blockbuster drugs. But you can't really charge whatever you want. I mean, there are – I don't know of any – you know, PCSK-9s don't cost $500,000 per year. Um, You know, they haven't reached that level yet of willingness to pay. And, and that's harder to get to market there because you often have to have randomized control trials measuring clinical endpoints. And these days, maybe even two randomized control trials in some very broad settings. I wonder if that has something to do with it.
2: I think that's probably one factor. I also think um, we usually say that in terms of drug development, mm-hmm. most small molecules were already screened. So I think even in the Pre, you know, in the early stages of drug development, um, pharma is probably focused on specialty drugs. Also, with the um, understanding now that we have of receptors, is is probably um, it has higher chances of success mm-hmm. to put a specialty drug through market mm-hmm. than than a small molecule.
0: I see. One of the things you said. That you introduce that your lecture in is that you know you think of yourself as a researcher and you're primarily a researcher, um, and like all researchers, you remain as neutral as possible towards um, you know whether or not something is good or bad, um, but rather seek to describe how the world is and what are the factors that might change and lead to a different outcome. And researchers tend not to feel like, you know, it's not your job to make a value judgment about how a society decides to spend their money, um, but rather to say these are the trade offs, these are the choices you're making to make that explicit. And if policymakers knowing that and the public knowing that decides to do X over Y, uh, so be it. Um, at the same time, you also kind of mention that part of you feels like um, that in this particular space, because there is so much dysfunction. Uh, it's very difficult to remain neutral and that even describing the situation often comes across as taking a stance uh, because the description is just, you know, often so lopsided. Uh, how do you think about this this topic?
2: Um, yeah, I when I teach or I lecture on this issue, I, I like to start acknowledging as I did today that it's very hard to remain neutral or to sound neutral when discussing drug prices. So uh, I believe um, you know that the key of, of academia is um, freedom and freedom of thinking, and mm-hmm. uh, I don't want to sound like I'm, I'm lecturing in you know um, any types of political tendency when when I talk. So that's why I, I like to acknowledge that affront. Um And I agree that my job as researcher is to set out to examine one research question mm-hmm. and describe the results that I see, and then try to interpret them. And uh, and try to figure out the the implications of those findings. So whether we like it or not, rock prices have increased a lot recently. So when we do these studies, that's what we find, and th- that's obviously what we report in our papers. Mm-hmm. I, I do think that our, a big important job as as academics is again to, to show these to show these trends and uh, and describe what's going on, with the objective. Of first informing all society, but also policymakers in in their job of uh, coming up with regulation that can hopefully prevent this from from happening again. But I do think when when I maybe drop my um, researcher hat, meaning my you know data analysis hat, and put on the the policy hat, uh, I do think that it could be important in the U.S. to come up with a system somehow. And when I mean a system, I mean a set of regulations. It's not only, again, about one. It's Mm -hmm. about a whole environment, an environment that prevents drug prices from increasing as they have been doing in the last few years uh, and hopefully can first ensure that patients can have access Mm -hmm. to affordable treatments. uh, And second, also assure the affordability of of public coverage of drugs um, on the long term, because we always talk about this, but it seems like we never do anything. Uh, Healthcare spending is every time accounting for a larger proportion of GDP. Pharmaceutical spending is one of the components of healthcare spending that is increasing the fastest. Mm -hmm. So this really threatens the affordability of covering pharmaceutical services under insurance as we know it. Uh, and that's also a very important point. We want to make sure that the system keeps functioning. So, so I think that's um, another of the objectives of, of policy is not only to obviously to ensure access of, of patients to drugs, which is very important, but it's also to ensure that um, we do have the money to to keep supporting the system.
0: Mm. And. One of the slides you showed was a slide of sort of classic economic theory and that sloping supply-demand curve and price, um, which is sort of the canonical way we're taught that markets regulate price um, through you know, consumers who are aware of the price, who are able to negotiate, who are able to decide if they want the product or not and whether or not the marginal increase in price is worth it to them for the marginal gain and you kind of went through all of the what you said sort of the assumptions of the economic model and you said in every single one of these assumptions is not the case for pharmaceutical drug pricing and for that reason this whole model fails does not explain what we're seeing and um you know your your lecture was really just example after example of where economic principles do not explain what we're seeing and and then one of your takeaway points there was that and for that reason that's why we need a regulatory, as you call it environment, a series of many different regulatory measures to try to check the runaway um prices um is Is that how you think about it
2: um yeah so i I, I like and I think you you summarized that very nicely. The pharmaceutical market violates all assumptions of an ideal market because there's insurance, there's barriers to entry. There's not perfect information, meaning it's very hard to predict the outcomes of a treatment. On top of that, um, consumers, meaning patients, are not really the ones that decide on the choice of drug that, that they want because it's obviously prescribers that decide them. So th- there's um, many factors that make the pharmaceutical market be very far from an ideal market. And, and that's precisely why supply and demand probably doesn't, doesn't work or is, is not a model that we can apply to explain what we are seeing and probably why there's also competition uh, or why drug prices do not respond well to competition. So I was saying that uh, with that I wanted to to make the point that maybe we shouldn't try to explain the pharmaceutical market as we explain other markets. We we should try to uh, think of the pharmaceutical market as a market where Prices are often set based on willingness to pay. Meaning um, prices offered just reflect the amount that payers and patients or, or manufacturers think that they are willing to pay for drugs. And that that's why it's not surprised that every time you know we, we do papers on looking at how and you've done a lot of research on this uh, on how evidence from clinical trials really doesn't result into different prices mm-hmm. or how me-to drugs are priced exactly the same as innovative drugs, how drugs that have not shown survival uh, benefit in clinical trials still get priced um, lower than, than drugs that only show um, effect on surrogate endpoints. Uh, and that's yes, because that rationale is not used for pricing. The rationale is yes to price at whatever Uh, they will pay for, uh, or what sometimes called as whatever the market will bear. Mm -hmm. And that's also because the regulatory environment allows it, meaning uh, pharmaceutical companies are highly globalized. Mm -hmm. Um, It's very hard to survive in the pharmaceutical market if you are not a multi-billion dollar industry. Uh, And most of of these companies operate globally uh, across different nations, so it's is, is basically the same leadership that are deciding over prices in Europe or Canada that are deciding over prices in the US. And obviously prices here are higher because companies do need to make money because that's, you know, they are non-profits they, they are companies. And they obviously leverage the fact that the environment here allows for higher price increases. So I think to mitigate that it's not a matter of implementing a single policy to fix drug prices. That's not going to happen. Uh, When we look at countries where drug prices have uh, not shown the increases that they have shown here, um, we can see that they have a set of policies um, to control this issue. For instance, they use cost effectiveness evidence to decide on coverage decisions at the time of launch. They also use therapeutic reference pricing. They do use international pricing, although um, that's been somehow controversial <laughs> here. Mm. Um, they also um, use generic bits. So that there's a, a lot of uh, systems already in place to prevent drug prices from increasing, given that or uh, with the rationale that this is necessary, this type of regulation and government intervention is nec- is necessary because the pharmaceutical market by itself fails to um, ensure that drug prices do not increase too fast because of first the little competition that is present in the market and also the fact that prices are offered very insensitive to competition because of, of everything else that goes on in healthcare.
0: And and one of the th- ways you kind of characterize this is that um, we can learn a, a quite a, quite a great bit about drug pricing from looking to Europe. Is that fair to say? And that and yet at the same time, there are many policy experts who are reluctant to look towards Europe or perhaps don't look towards Europe.
2: Um, well, I'm European, so I <laughs> obviously like to look back at home and and try to learn from what the European system has to offer, mm-hmm. in the sense that obviously they have a, a record of uh, maintaining drug prices much lower than here. And that's in part related to the fact that the healthcare system is integrated in national health systems. So they have high bargaining power, Mm -hmm. much larger than um, the U.S. has here because obviously the the business is very split across different payers. So obviously that should be acknowledged. and, And a big part of the power of regulation is related to the bargaining power that you can affect with. With it. Um, Having said that, I think there's a lot of value in looking at what other countries are doing because they have already tried that out. So it it saves time uh, and money in exploring what, for them, it's what type of regulations for them um, have shown to work and which ones have not. And again, obviously, there's the, the the context is very different, and policies are also very dependent on that. But but I think it's important to to look at what other places are doing. I think within the United States, states are good at doing that with other states. But I don't think as a country, United States looks too much at what others are doing. They do for the outcome, meaning. We do now, and this has been published and everybody's aware, that drug prices here are much higher than in other countries. But I don't think we have looked enough into the reasons why, Mm -hmm. and what are those policies that in those countries are keeping drug prices low, and whether we could apply them here or not, or what um, tweaks they could need to, to work in this system.
0: Now, one of the things you alluded to just now is this difference between the incremental cost-effectiveness ratio and a cost-effectiveness analysis um, against sort of a global budget, a global spending budget. And there were some people in the audience today when you gave your lecture um, who had also heard me talk about cost-effectiveness. And they came up to me after the lecture and they said, "Boy." now it finally makes sense and is clearer than it's ever been before. <laughs> and, and I said, but didn't I see you at my lecture on this topic? And they're like, exactly right. And now it's finally clear to them. And so I'm wondering, because I do think it is even clearer to me that, and, and I, I feel like I learned many things in this lecture too. Um, can you explain to the listener that this is a fundamental misconception in the space of cost-effectiveness analysis? What is the difference between the incremental, the ICER, and cost-effectiveness analysis in sort of a global budget situation. How are they similar? How are they different? And and how and what should the reader know when they look at a paper on this topic?
2: Well, the first thing is that maybe your students now have it clearer just yes, because they heard twice. No, oh, no, not I because <laughs> it was me explaining. I know
0: I don't know if that's it, but uh, I, I'm willing to believe it. <laughs>
2: <laughs> um, so there's two different applications of cost-effectiveness, and they are used in different cases. Um, the first application is when we need to decide between two treatments that uh, are an alternative to each other. So they are used in exactly the same stage, the same condition, and you could use either one or another. And that's where when we should use ICER, which means incremental cost effectiveness ratio. The second case is when uh, we think, for instance, the perspective of um, a state health agency and we have this budget and we need to allocate it and maximize the the benefit that we get with, with this budget, with this dollar amount. So obviously in that case, we're choosing across services or drugs or treatments that are used in different conditions. So they are not exchangeable. You could do most of, you could do more than one of them. In that case, we should not use ICER, we should just use cost effectiveness, meaning the ratio between the cost of each therapy and the effectiveness. Um, Effectiveness usually being measured in quality adjusted life years. So in the first case, when when we are comparing two drugs, two treatments used in the same condition, how we calculate the ICER is as a ratio. We take the ratio between the difference in cost and the difference in effectiveness. And um, we only do this for drugs that we call they are not dominated, meaning you only compare the cost effectiveness of one drug that is more effective and more expensive than another drug. Because if you were to have a drug that was more effective and cheaper than something else, you could always use it, so that there's no point in doing this, mm-hmm. right?
0: That, that's, a, that's a no-brainer. Right, that's and, a no-brainer. And similarly, a drug that is uh, less effective and more expensive is a no-brainer, you don't you? You never do, do that. Mm.
2: So uh, when you do your cost effectiveness analysis, you remove those, and then you take those increments in cost and effectiveness, and you take the ratio between them. It should be noted that because this methodology is done in comparison, the choice of comparator is really important, It's crucial. Um sometimes, in studies that are not as comprehensive as they should be, there may be intermediate comparators that may be left out. And, and that's a very important flaw because since everything is done in increments and in terms of a ratio, drugs can look as cost-effective or not depending on what you are comparing them to. So, a good cost-effectiveness analysis should include all therapeutic options. Um, that are available for that exactly same condition or, or same stage of disease. Usually, um, in different countries, different thresholds are used for for funding. In the US, there's no cost effectiveness thresholds set. Um, in the case of the UK, for instance, they have this 30,000 uh, pound per quality adjusted life year threshold, so, so that's what they use. But in the US, there's not such a threshold. Often, drugs with ICER around $100,000 per quality are considered cost effective, but again, those estimates can range anywhere in between fifty dollars and one fifty hundred thousand, dollars mm. depending on, on who you talk to. So that would be the first application. The second application of cost effectiveness is when, um, as a state agency, for instance, or when you have like a budget, you need to distribute it and maximize the cost quality adjusted life years that you get out of it. So what you could do in that case is just take the cost effectiveness, meaning the ratio between the cost and the qualities with each treatment, and then you could rank all of the strategies in ascending order of cost effectiveness. So you could start with the one that has the lowest price per quality adjusted life year. Mm -hmm. And you could start funding those all the way until you are out of money. That's the way how you could maximize the amount of qualities that you are buying with your dollars. Obviously, it could be very bartersome for um, state agencies, for instance, to have to do all these calculations for virtually all services that mm-hmm. they cover. So that's why often we use thresholds as comparison. But I think this, this detail on the application of these methodologies are important because if we use ICER to decide whether a state or, or like whether Medicare should cover a drug or not, those numbers are gonna be deceptive in the sense that ICER may be lower, just yes, because the comparator was very expensive already. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if we actually were to take the ratio, that ratio could be very high. Mm-hmm. So strategies good. Those strategies um, that involve very expensive treatments that, again, in comparison may look as cost-effective, they are actually buying us less quality-adjusted life years than many others.
0: I see, and so I guess someone could potentially, um, if you already have a bunch of incredibly expensive therapies in a space, you could debut therapies that don't really add that much and are only slightly more expensive and they'll be quote unquote cost effective, when in reality from a global point of view, they are horrendously costly for a very little benefit to society. And if society could somehow look at it from a a 30,000 foot view, would say, this is something that we ought not pay for and we ought not prioritize.
2: That, that's exactly correct, and that's why sometimes we we say things like um, cost-effectiveness analysis as ICER, mm-hmm. meaning as calculated in increments and in ratios, it can be misleading, especially in the cases of these very expensive therapies. Because uh, when you compare, when your comparator is on the hundred of thousands dollars range, mm-hmm. everything in comparison looks not yeah. cheap, but at least not expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, 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 we should be very aware of the fact that ratios behave mathematically very poorly because they are obviously very dependent not only on the denominator, but also on the numerator. And, and that's something that we should bear in, bar in mind when we do decisions on coverage of drugs based on ICER.
0: So, you know, I hadn't thought about this until now, but if you're a company and you make a new drug and you want to improve your ICER, what are the things you could do? Well, one thing is you could have made a better drug, but that's a biological problem, it's very difficult. So, you know, they're really up against a wall there. It's only as good as it is. Um, The next thing you could do is you could charge less for your drug because if you charge less, you'll improve the incremental cost-effectiveness ratio. But the other thing you could do is you could raise the price of all your older drugs year over year, inflation, and then your newer drug won't look as bad because it's only an incremental increase in price. So that would be one way you could improve the ICER of the newer drug by cranking up the price of the the other drug, the comparator drug. Was that fair to say?
2: Uh, Yeah, I think that's fair to say.
0: That's interesting. And there's a nice review in the BMJ that compares cost-effectiveness analyses that were industry-sponsored to non-industry-sponsored, I believe, on the same clinical question, and they find an increased odds ratio of meeting a favorable ICER threshold if it was industry-sponsored than if it was non-industry-sponsored. And um, I think sometimes some of us have had to um, review or read uh, some of these cost-effectiveness analyses in many different contexts, and, and we see a whole bunch of ways in which the model has been distorted to reach a sort of favorable conclusion.
2: Cost-effectiveness analysis are really dependent on how the model is built and the input parameters. Obviously, we've also talked about this. If you hand a data set to different groups of researchers, they are gonna come up with very different answers because of different study designs, different stats, um, different choice of variables to adjust for, et cetera. that variation is significant in a study based on, on data that you hand. Variation would be much, much, much larger on a study that is based on modeling. Because the first thing, it, it takes an abstraction of how you're going to model uh, a condition and all the stages that you can go through it after the treatment within a simplified model that can actually be run on a computer, right? And obviously, if we build a model that is so complicated that it represents absolutely everything, chances is we're not gonna have input parameters for each of those probabilities, for each of those costs. Mm -hmm. So usually when we do cost effectiveness analysis, we say that it's important to keep it as simple as possible given that it actually represents um, the main stages of, of the disease, of the condition, or of the progression of the patient. But obviously, there's a very big variation of the input parameters that you use in your cost-effectiveness analysis. And also, again, big variation in which alternatives you choose as comparators. And that's probably one of the biggest source of bias in in cost-effectiveness analysis, Mm. Uh, the omission of comparators that should actually be included because they are one of the options that a clinician could choose for their patient.
0: I wonder if I could ask you about something that you brought up today, which is about the projects that you know you're really motivated to do, and the projects you have to do and, and you're smiling when you when you hear this. Uh, and don't worry, nobody who funds grants will be listening, so <laughs> you have nothing to fear.
2: um uh, we we often say, and I think this is good advice for mentees, whether we like it or not ideas that make good papers Mm -hmm. probably don't make good grants, and the other way around, meaning um, given how the grant system works, it it obviously takes a while to get funding for certain research ideas. So sometimes those research ideas may be outdated by the time we, we get grants, which is unfortunate. Uh, it's it's obviously something also difficult to fix because I think it's very important to do a thorough job in assigning research funding. So it's probably very hard to to cut the cycle. Um, and I, I don't think funding agencies do anything wrong. I, I just think it's in the nature of of our work as academics that sometimes if there's a novel agent or a new research idea, I think it's important to do the work timely. So if we have the resources to do it, even though it's, it's not funded. I think it's it's important that we still do it in a timely manner because it's in their interest of society to have that result as soon as possible. So so I think that appeals somehow to the um, research that is very time sensitive versus the research that uh, maybe is a little bit less time sensitive and hence um, it's, it's probably a better idea for a grant submission because it won't be outdated by the time the grant comes in.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with this a great deal. And I guess what I like about it is this idea that um, uh, I think that as all scientists, um, we are participating in a dialogue both with other scientists and with society. And that's why some research questions are quote unquote hot or important, um, because they're timely. They're things people are talking about and they're things that people care a great deal about. and They happen to care a great deal about them in this moment. And we would be doing a disservice if we didn't say if we just ignored all of that and did questions on our own time frame. Rather, and we would not be participating in some of these discussions. And that would be a great disservice to you know many lively, important debates—not just about drug pricing, but about you know even biological aspects. But the one thing that I kind of would push back on a little bit is that I think that we have a terrible grant system. Uh, but you know, not to say that terrible systems don't do good things. Um, they were good to fund you. That's one good thing they've done. But, <laughs> but they've done some foolish things because what they do is they impose a huge time sink into researchers. I mean, they take so much of our, the time of really talented people to compose these, these grants. That's one, okay, so they, they do have some cost. And then my question I always have is, is there another way you could have given out the funds in a way that would have had less cost um, and yielded similar kind of portfolios of research, research productivity. And and I think the answer to kind of sort it out is for them to kind of experiment. And they could like randomly assign half the grants budget one year to K awards being given in the traditional manner. And the other half being given to just one thing, then the prior publications of the applicant. And all they're doing is they're just sorting people by prior publications and they're giving it out that way. That's, you know, that's my control arm, like in a randomized trial. Maybe it's a forearm randomized trial. The third arm of the study is you just get um, seven impartial people to have a phone conversation with a person just to kind of hear their thoughts and do it in a verbal way I mean why does it have to be written um, and, or, you know and maybe the fourth arm is even something like a lottery a lottery for people who have a certain you know basic check you check off these boxes you have a PhD from one of these you know not fly-by-night schools you've done work you know a couple of papers check 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 and then we just give it out in a lottery and then the question I would have is is the current system, which imposes a great cost on people, a human cost, takes our time and you know, requires all these letters and all this paperwork. Is that the best way of delivering the grant money than some of these other ways that might be less costly? And you could follow it up at 10 years or by all the usual flawed citation metrics, but also um, you know, metrics of like how many projects yielded tangible um, policy changes, how many projects yielded clinically successful products or something like that as well? So maybe something more meaningful. So I guess what I would say is, I I think scientists have to participate in the dialogue. I wish the people who are in the grants business, they have no incentive to put you know what they're doing to the test. They're they're happy to do it the way they've always done it. I wish they did a little bit more of this kind of questioning. What do you think?
2: I think um, I, I agree, and I think uh, all researchers would like to actually spend some of the time that we spend <laughs> writing grants, spending, you know, doing, doing research, and yeah. uh, that that could be lovely, but I also realized that funding agencies mm-hmm. owe to their funding sources, meaning taxpayers mm-hmm. or donors, um, some degree of accountability on mm-hmm. how they are spending the healthcare dollars. Mm-hmm. So I can see how this very thorough application system somehow Evolve. guarantees mm-hmm. Uh, that uh, on a manner that is as objective as possible, mm-hmm. dollars are, are being spent um, where they should be or on the projects that have the most merit. Having said that, what I really worry a lot is the delay in innovation that this funding cycle uh, somehow leads to. Again, I think some of these timely papers that we're able to do, it's it's because we, we donate our our time to to these papers, right? Because they are often uh, not funded, but we, we do them uh, because within they are really important. Mm-hmm. Fortunately, as academics, we have the luxury to do that, but in some, um, in other settings, that, that wouldn't be possible. Um, so, so I think it's important to realize that actually we are just living really good ideas and probably the top of the innovation and the most timely topics to academics to actually donate their time in mm-hmm. doing them rather than actually putting the resources on, on that. I, I think it has a really hard fix because I can see how you can also make an argument for why you don't want to give a grant if the researcher hasn't spent as much time thinking about it if they don't have it all figured out. Mm-hmm. But we also know that when we do those timely papers mm-hmm. um, that we realize they are important Often when we start doing them, we don't have everything figured out mm-hmm. as when you have spent four months writing this grant and mm-hmm. obviously you have thought of every single angle. Mm-hmm. So I, I think it's 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 a very hard trade off between accountability, mm-hmm. um, preparation of the research, thinking of the potential limitations and the implications versus delay in innovation.
0: Mm. And the delay in innovation, by that you mean um, that there may be some people who do submit grants on topics that are presumably timely, but they want to get the grant before they'll even start the work. They're not donating the time, because like anything else, it's, um, you know, this thing that people do when they're most excited, but when they're sort but, of medium excited, they're not going to do
2: but, it. But I think time can be donated, but yeah. resources cannot be donated. Uh, Meaning right. if you need mm. data, um, mice, monkeys' resources, I don't know, live reagents to do something and you don't have them, you cannot just you know, donate them because mm-hmm. you, you may be able to donate time, but often for research, we do need many more resources that time. So, so that's why the delay innovation needs, I think it also comes at a risk.
0: Mm, that's interesting. And even, for instance, like access to Seer Medicare data set or something like that, you need the money to get the access. Um, and there could be a delay in getting the access because you're waiting for the grant cycle to go through. So um, I've kept you here so long today. You've talked to so many groups of people. Uh, I think ever, I've heard nothing but uh, great things about um, all of your lectures. Um, thank you so much for coming, Dr. Hernandez. And thank you so much for taking us through some of these issues.
2: Thank you very much for having me. It's been an honor. Thank you.
0: You've been listening to Plenary Session. Plenary Session is a podcast at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy. I've been your host, Vinay Prasad. If you like this podcast and you like this episode, go to the iTunes store and give us five stars. It really means a lot. If you have the time, write a comment. If you want to give us feedback, you can follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session, or you can send an email to plenary session at gmail.com. We like to know what you're thinking. What could we be better? What topics could we cover? Um, how can we improve? Finally, Plenary Session owes a debt of gratitude to Kiana Klossner, Audrey Tran, and Ian Straley.